welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. I hope you're all alive and well after Thanksgiving. Some of you, I, you look like you're still feeling the effects of the turkey. But you'll wake up, I promise. <laughs> uh, it's good to be back. If you don't know me, I know we had a couple visitors. I tried to say hi to all of you. My name is uh, Alex Duncan. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And I have the privilege of opening up God's Word tonight as we look at the Gospel of John. Um, but I was thinking about how I wanted to start this. And I wanted to say, uh, some of you may know this already, but I recently became an uncle. And this is a good thing. I know, I, I, I shared that with the kids' ministry on Sunday. I said, guys, I am now Uncle Dunk. And they're all like, yeah. And I said, but you can't call me that. I said, I'm your pastor. You need to call me Pastor Dunk. And they're like, oh. <laughs> no. So I, it's super fun. I, uh, I became an uncle. And uh, for the most part, I think that's why my Thanksgiving was so joyful. Uh, my sister and her husband, they live in Colorado. And so they came back out for the holidays and our, our whole family was able to get together. I actually have a picture. I don't know how well it's going to come through, but Corey, can you throw it up? I don't show off my family a lot, so I thought I might as well do it. You can barely see us, but if you look up here, on the far right is Ben. He's the tallest uh, and the youngest of the boys. Then you have Kendra. She's a sophomore in high school. Then me, my dad, mom, Jake, and then obviously my sister Kelsey and her husband Sal. So uh, everybody kind of likes to laugh about it. So Sal is, um, I call him Sal. His name's Solomon. I call him Sal. He's Hmong, so that means he's Asian. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because whenever I would walk around with Robbie, that's my nephew, like it would always be me and my sister, and people would be like, oh, is it yours? And then they would see him, and they'd be like, no. <laughs> you know, like, like clearly not yours. So uh, I love Solomon. He's actually a youth pastor uh, in Colorado. So it was super fun to get them to uh, hang out with us, but uh, since I don't get to see them that often, you know, I, and I knew they were coming for Thanksgiving, I was kind of getting prepared. You know, I was preparing myself for a lot of, like, baby holding. I was preparing myself for a lot of, like, baby rocking, baby burping, but of all the things I could prepare for, uh, nothing got me ready for what I experienced, which was a baby betrayal, a baby betrayal. And uh, I want to give you some more context what I mean by that. I, uh, I came upstairs one morning for breakfast, and that is when I discovered my nephew's treachery. And uh, rather than just telling you about it, I, I took another picture so I could show you. Do you have the second picture? We'll see if it goes up. Okay. <laughs> so for context, for those of you who don't understand what's going on, this is my nephew Robinson. I call him Robbie. And what he is wearing is a Chicago Bears onesie. Now... More context, my entire family is staunchly supporters of the Kansas City Chiefs. And so needless to say, when I came up, I realized I had been betrayed by my own family. It was terrible. I was, I was disappointed. But no, as I, as I was kind of wrestling through that and, and then came to what we were going to be talking about tonight, you know, I realized there are far worse betrayals in life that you can experience than your nephew cheering for the wrong football team. You know, and uh, it can kind of seem funny as a way to introduce this subject, but if you've ever actually been betrayed by someone, 
and you've had someone who you, you have cared for, but then they choose to lie to you um, or tear you down for selfish reasons, then you know it can leave some, some pretty deep wounds in the heart. Uh, and just, I think it goes to say how many of us are thankful that we serve a God who can heal those wounds. Amen? That's good news. But betrayal is a terrible thing. And in the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus himself suffered it ultimately so that we could be forgiven. Jesus experiences betrayal, and he does it ultimately uh, so that we could be forgiven. So if you're taking notes, my title for this sermon is Betraying Jesus. And we're going to be in John chapter 13 tonight. We're continuing in the, in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30. And as you're turning there, the, the main thought or idea um, that I want you to keep in your mind is that tonight we're going to see God is sovereign and man is accountable to him. God is sovereign and man is accountable to him. Uh, when you take the pulse of this passage, that is the heartbeat that I think you find. And uh, it really serves as both a warning to our lives, but also as an encouragement and so I hope you hear that, even from the beginning. When we talk about God's sovereignty, man's accountability, people can tend to view it as just an encouragement, no warning, or as a warning, no encouragement. I think it's both. God has a warning for us in this passage uh, about how we live our lives, but he also has an encouragement with regards to the pain that we might have experienced in things like betrayal and hardship. And so I think we need both the warning and the encouragement tonight, and uh, that's why I'm going to start by just reading the passage and then we're going to unpack what God's placed in here for us. So starting in verse 21, it says that after saying these things, and I'm just going to pause right there. This is in reference to everything Luke preached on two weeks ago. Jesus telling the disciples, serve one another, but then also warning them, someone's going to betray me. So it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples, they looked at one another, and they were uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread... Judas immediately went out, and it was night. And that's our passage for tonight. And uh, I think it's safe to say that most people are aware of the name Judas Iscariot. You know, there are a lot of traitors you find in history, but there is none more notorious <laughs> than Judas. He's kind of gone down in history for this passage, uh, because of this passage and his actions. Um, but when you read about him and you, and you look at his story, really the question that I wrestled with, I think it's the, the question that naturally comes up is why Judas? In the story of redemption and God's plan to save us from our sins, why would he choose Judas? Why would he use the betrayal of Judas on his way to the cross? 
Like certainly, you know, as I thought about it, I just couldn't there have been another way to get to the cross? Like did he have to choose someone who would ultimately betray him and then be condemned for it? Like if it were me, couldn't Jesus knowing this just walk past Judas, never invited him to be an apostle and still done it? Why Judas is kind of the thought. And I wrestled with that all week, but I think what I had to remember is that God does everything intentionally. And he has a purpose behind it. There's nothing random that happens in life. Like chance and, and luck, all these things, none of those exist. Instead, you have a God who moves, and he moves with purpose. And when it came to Christ going to the cross, he ordained it that it would happen through the betrayal of a friend. And in part, I think he did that to show us that he is the master over all things. And so that's my first point tonight. When we look at betraying Jesus, what we learn is that God is the master over all things. And uh, I take this from the very first verse of our passage. And so if you look with me at verse 21, Jesus tells the disciples here something that he could not possibly know unless he is God. He says to them, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And uh, as you look at that, just notice, it doesn't say, you know, truly, truly, one of you has betrayed me, or truly, truly, one of you I discovered is going to betray me. What does he say? Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And so it's the future tense, which means that this betrayal has not happened yet. But Jesus still knows about it. And what's amazing is not only does he know he's going to be betrayed, he can actually identify the culprit of the crime before it even happens. And so just imagine if you were a detective and you could do that. <laughs> I was thinking about this. One of my favorite shows is Psych. Everybody, like, I've never, <laughs> that's like the first clap I've gotten. My goodness. <laughs> that's terrible. Get some amens from Psych. Some of you are like Blue Bloods people. I never got into it. But in Psych, you know, you have Sean Spencer, the psychic detective. But just imagine if he had this ability. He could walk into any room and he knows who the culprit is before the crime's even committed. And that's the show. Episode starts, Sean walks into some random dude's house, tells the police, arrest him, he's going to burn down a building in two days. End of show. You're like, well, that would suck. <laughs> Why? Because there's no suspense, and it's unrealistic. Nobody can do that, including Jesus Christ, unless he's God. Only God has the ability to know what is coming in the future, and not only know it, what we're going to see is he's the one who ordains it. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make to his disciples here. And the reason I know that is because if you look back at verse 19, he says it very plainly. In the context of talking about his betrayal, Jesus says to them, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He wants the disciples to see. He's like, look. I am going to be betrayed, but lest you think that me being betrayed is somehow demeans my divinity, I'm going to tell you about it beforehand. So rather than you thinking that, oh man, Jesus wasn't God, he claimed to be, but this guy betrayed him. No, now you're going to see that happen and say, wow, he must be God. He must be God. Why? He told us that this would happen before it actually did. And so what you have here is Jesus is teaching the disciples that he is the Christ and that being God, he is in absolute control of the betrayal that's soon to come. And what's so interesting about that, and the reason why I dive into it, just kind of pulling it apart there, is because this 
is one of the passages that we draw our understanding of God's sovereignty. I told you at the beginning, what's the main idea? It's that God is sovereign and man is accountable to him. Well, this is in part what I mean when we say God is sovereign. It's this idea, this thought that he is in control of everything. Really, it's the doctrine that God is master over all, and therefore, he upholds and guides all things by his power. And just to put it very simply to you guys, there is never a place in Scripture where you find that Jesus or God is reacting to a situation. He's never reacting. He's the one who's always causing it to happen. Not, uh, maybe not directly like Jesus like watches the tree wither, and then he's like, boom, okay, I did that. God is doing all things over it, but needless to say, in all things, Jesus never reacts. He's never surprised. He's never taken back by how things have played out. Instead, Ephesians 1.11 is really key here, and it describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Jesus doesn't react. Instead, he works all things, that's past, present, and future, according to the counsel of his will. So that everything in heaven and on earth happens under the guidance of God's will, with no exceptions. And that's why Jesus can be here, and he's not surprised by the fact that Judas is going to betray him. In the verse, it says Jesus was troubled in spirit. That's not saying he's surprised. It's saying that he knows what's coming. He's troubled because he knows he's going to the cross to suffer. And he's troubled because he knows the decision that Judas will ultimately make. And so he tells the disciples about it. And it's at this point where I think, you know, people want to know necessarily then why would Jesus, if he knows Judas is going to betray him, why would he ever, you know, invite Judas to be a disciple? Why would he ever pour into him? And this is where I can say, honestly, no one can tell you. No one is privy to that information. Instead, all we're given is Psalm 115.3. And it says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. There's this aspect of mystery to God. And I've always heard it said that if we could know everything about God, then he wouldn't be God. And so we encounter these moments where we're like, God, why would you do it? You have those personally. You're like, God, why, why did it have to happen this way? And we won't know until we're in eternity and we look back. But here, according to his perfect and divine will, God chose to use Judas as the vessel that would get Jesus to the cross. And it was through betrayal. And again, I think this is where some people get discouraged at the thought that God is master over all. But my hope for us in 20s and just for you personally is that you would see it as the best and most encouraging news that you could hear tonight. Because if the same God who could use the betrayal of Judas to bring about the greatest act in history, redemption, if that same God is working today, then certainly he can use the betrayals and the hardships that we experience for good. If he can do it with Judas, he can do it with anything in your life. And to be honest, I would rather not have to be sufficient. And that's where you end up if you don't recognize God as master overall. Is now you are the one who has to be sufficient for all things. And friends, that is not your weight to carry. It is not your burden. God is the only one who can do that. And we can trust it to him gladly because he is working all things for good. And so my question for you tonight is, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a God who exists and not only exists and stands far off, but he he works powerfully in your life and not only in your life, but in all things 
to accomplish his will. I hope you do. Because I think, again, this is where some people miss it. And I look around, and I, this happens in my own life. I see it in believers' lives. They're walking around. They're stressed. They're anxious. They're freaking out about life circumstances. And why? It's because they forgot who's in control and who's standing at the top making things happen according to his will. There is such a comfort in that. When you're in a situation where you don't know how it's going to end, it's nice to trust someone who actually knows where it goes. It's funny, I won't out this person because they're here, but I was just talking to someone yesterday, and they were telling me that when it came to football games, they would go through and record them and watch them with their family. And as they were watching the games, you know, they they would record them and go back and watch them later on because they couldn't watch it during the game. And instead of being able to do that, they were so stressed and anxious about how the game would play out that they would go and look up the results beforehand and then watch it with their family without telling them. Why? Because it's nice to know how it ends, isn't it? How many of you are like, yeah, if I could watch all the games or all the movies and know how it ends, I would do it immediately. You're like, that gives some comfort to my heart. Well, here's the joy. You don't get to. God does. And you get to trust him. And he's good. And he's faithful. And in all these things, he's trying to teach us. And so my encouragement for you would be don't try to take control into your own hands. Rather, the posture of the believer is this. We hand all things over to the Lord in prayer. Something happens to us. Somebody betrays us, you know, at work or, or in our own family, maybe even here in 20s. You know what we do? We open our hands and we lift it up to God in prayer. Oh, man, I didn't get the job I wanted. Lift up the hands to God in prayer. Man, you know, I really like this person. It didn't work out. Okay. Open the hands, lift them up to God in prayer. That's the posture of the believer. We're doing that again and again and again. And unlike anyone else, we actually have someone who is able to answer our prayers and someone who is a better plan than our own that we're praying to. And so it's good news. Through Judas Iscariot and his act of betraying Jesus, God wants to teach us that he is the master overall. But it's not only that, because God also reminds us that out of his sovereignty, he extends his love to us unconditionally. And this is going to be my second point. God extends his love unconditionally. And if you're going to understand where I get this point from in the text, I I need to give you all a lesson in Jewish etiquette. So you guys ready for this? We're going to learn some manners. Manners maketh men. No, these are the Jewish uh, rules of etiquette that they used to have. And why it's important is because if you haven't realized it yet, we are actually uh, witnessing a conversation here that takes place during the Last Supper. We are at the Last Supper, but it is not anything like the way that Leonardo, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, wow, that was hard. It's nothing like his painting, is my point, right? You, you think of that picture, and it's like all of them lined up on one side for the still shot, and they're all, you know, eating. That's not how it worked in that time. And Luke kind of touched on this, but when, when Jews came together, uh, if it wasn't a special holiday, they would eat normally, like normal people at a table. But if it was something special something like the Passover feast, what they would do is they would take couches and they would put them around where the food was. And then they would all lay on them. And we need to understand that because if that's not the case, then the whole foot washing and this conversation doesn't work if it's just one table. But it's not. It's these couches. And what you'd have to understand is when uh, Jews would get together, the host was the most important person at the meal. So whoever's hosting, they're the most important and they would always take the middle of the front couch. 
And they wouldn't sit on the couch. Luke talked about this. Instead, the practice was you would lie on your side and you would lean on your like left arm and you would eat with your right, right? So you're all kind of like facing almost like dominoes in one direction. And as you're, you're kind of thinking through that, what it would be is that you would have the host in the middle and they would always put the people, uh, the two people with the most honor on the right and the left of the host. And so if you were on the right, you were considered the guest with the second most honor. But if you were on the left side, you were the, the guest with the most honor. You were the, in the best position. And so why does all that matter? Well, it's because it gives a lot of uh, insight to what's going on in this passage here and into my point. And so if you look back at it with me, it says that after Jesus told the disciples, truly, truly, one of you will betray me, it says they all looked at each other uncertain. It's almost like if you have siblings and like your dad, like just you're at the dinner table and he just says, I know what you did. And you're all like, was it you? Like <laughs> you're like trying to figure it out. It's kind of the thought here. Like they're all looking at each other like, did you do it? Are you going to betray him? No, I'm not going to do it. Are you doing it? They're all looking at each other. They don't know what's going on. And uh, as that's all happening, it says that Peter asked the disciple whom Jesus loved to start digging for more information. And so what's interesting is in the Gospel of John, this is the first time we encounter it, but John actually refers to himself in this way. So John is the author of this Gospel, and every time he pops up, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. How do you like that? You're like, oh, yes, me. It'd be like if I wrote a book and it's like, Alex, the one that everybody loved. <laughs> it's like, you're like, okay, that seems a little pretentious. Well, the reason behind it is because they think it's actually John's disciples who put that in there. So it's not him necessarily saying it, but for our context, the disciple who Jesus, whom Jesus loved is John. And so Peter asked John, hey, can you ask Jesus what he's talking about? Because none of us know who the traitor is. And look at what it says. It says that one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which is John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So already our ears should perk up. He's in one of the places of honor. Now, is it the left or is it the right? Well, we find out. Because it says that after Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, that disciple leaned back against Jesus and asked him the question. And so what you find is John is actually in the place of the second most honor here. Jesus is lying on his side like this. John is right in front of him, and he leans back and literally like just puts his head on his chest, looks up and says, who are you talking about? You, you kind of imagine this. In our context, we'd all be like, what? Like, get off me. But this is normal. What you also find here is that when John asks this question, nobody else hears it. John is the only one who is going to ask and hear Jesus' response. But he leans back, and he asks Jesus, who is the one that is going to betray you? Now, uh, why that's important and where this kind of puts us is that if John is in the position of second most honor, who then is in the position of the most honor? Who has Christ chosen to be at his left side? And the verse tells us, actually. If you look at verse 26, Jesus answers John. He says, the traitor is the one to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And it says that he handed it to who? Judas Iscariot. And so if you are lying on your side, here's my question for you. How far can you reach? Not far. Probably only to the person on your left, on your right. The thought here, and almost every commentary I encountered said that because of this tradition, we can generally assume that Jesus had put Judas Iscariot in the position of highest honor that night. Is that interesting to you? 
Jesus chose to elevate Judas in that moment knowing he would betray him. And the reason why that people would say, okay, well, that seems like a stretch. Well, it gets confirmed by the fact that Jesus hands him the morsel. This is another part of Jewish etiquette that you have to understand. To do that as the host, to dip the bread and hand it to someone, was what you would do to mark out the guest of highest honor. And so it's signifying who it is. And you actually have a biblical example of this in the book of Ruth. Uh, In Ruth chapter 2, Boaz is kind of sitting out in the field and he's eating lunch. And he invites Ruth to come over and he, he tells her this. He literally says... Uh, take, uh, yeah, take your piece of bread and dip it uh, into my plate. And for him, it was a sign of honor and even affection towards Ruth. And so here, what you have is that Jesus is honoring and showing affection to Judas. And just think about this. Even going back to the passage that Luke preached on, Jesus goes into the, the Last Supper knowing Judas is his betrayer. So I just want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. If you've ever been betrayed, imagine that person who, who wronged you. But this time you know it's going to happen before it actually did. And you're having dinner with them. But oh, when you get there, you're going to put them in the highest position of honor. And then after that, you're going to get on your uh, hands and knees and you're going to wash their feet. You learn about that. And then after you've washed their feet, you're going to take the piece of bread and you're going to say, here is the highest honor I could give you and you're going to extend it to them. Are you starting to see where I, where I take this idea from, that God offers his love unconditionally? Judas in no way deserves any of those, but what you see in each of them is a moment where Christ is reaching out to him with, with grace, with love, and each of those serves as an opportunity for Judas to repent. Every single time Jesus honors him, it is just putting more weight of condemnation on Judas because at this point he already has the 30 pieces of silver in his purse he's already agreed to betray Jesus and so imagine that you've already decided to betray someone but they just keep loving you more and more and more friends Jesus had every reason not to love Judas (laughs) but he still extends his love to him unconditionally and what is amazing about that is that God has done the same for you and me I think this is where it's so important for us to see this. It might look a little different than a morsel of bread, but God has offered his love to each and every one of us in a very unconditional way. Now, I was thinking about how that plays out in my life. The thought came to me that God in no way had to put me in a family that loves Christ. He in no way had to give me parents who were faithful to share the gospel. And if that's your story, then guess what? You didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. And maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story is that God put a friend or, you know, a coworker or a pastor or even just something on the internet. Maybe he put something in your path that got you to church and that's how you heard the truth of God's word. If that's the case, then guess what? You didn't deserve that. And maybe you're here and you're like, neither of those applies to me. I don't have parents who love Jesus. I've never really had anyone who points me to Christ. Well, guess what? I would say to you, even though you would say you're like, you're like Alex, my life is miserable. It's a train wreck. How could God, how could you ever say God has extended love to me? Friend, I would just say this. You're here tonight. You're here tonight. And in this moment, God is extending the offer of his free grace, which is the gospel, to you. And guess what? If that's you, you don't deserve it. That's why we call it good news. That Christ died for us while we were yet still sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. It's this amazing thing that Jesus Christ, 
who was without sin. He was innocent, never once sinned. He was the one who was betrayed for us. He was the one who was beaten and mocked by the Romans for us. And he is the one who suffered the wrath of God's, uh, God's wrath towards our sin on our behalf while dying on a tree. It says that he did all of that while we were rebelling against him, betraying him. And so wherever you're coming from tonight, God has extended his love towards you. And guess what? None of us deserve it. And when people get to this concept of, of, you know, God getting to be master over all and, and extending love to us, they say, you know what? It's just not fair. And here's my answer to that. You don't want to be judged on what's fair according to your standards. Otherwise, none of us get saved. Thankfully, God's ways are a lot higher than our own. They're better, and he has grace towards us. If the betrayal of Christ teaches us anything, I think it teaches us to be grateful for the way that God has freely extended his love to sinners. And that's really where I was just finding a lot of joy. I hope you find joy in this. I know that one's intense, but it's like, man, it made me so thankful for my parents. If, you, if that's you, like, just to be thankful, God, you, had no, you didn't have to put me in a place where we could have church. There are people all over the world who don't get that privilege. Uh, if you're someone who had a friend who brought you here, like, God, thank you, you put someone in my life. If you just showed up here randomly, God, thank you that somehow, <laughs> you know, I'm here. It's like, I don't know how it works, but man, I just, we ought to be thankful. That's what the betrayal of Christ teaches us. But I think it also teaches one last thing, and I think we have to end it here. And that's that it also brings a warning and it's a reminder to us that we are accountable for our response. It's just my last point. Man is accountable for his response. If God is sovereign and he extends love to us, then we are the ones who are accountable for how we respond to that love. In verse 27, if you look at it, Jesus answers, this is 26, Jesus answers and he says, the traitor is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then here's the key. After Judas had taken the morsel, it says that Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And so you see that in the case of Judas, Jesus is offering him all this love. But what does he do? He doesn't soften his heart at all and say he hardens it. I think I was, I was reading in the, in the Bible plan, it's in Zechariah, I'd love to say chapter 9, God talks about the Israelites and he says they have hardened their hearts like diamonds, <laughs> you know, like almost impierceable. And I think of that here with Judas, like it's just so much love being poured out on him and as soon as he takes the morsel, we see this decision is made and it's this climax, like this is where the, the, the peak of the text, it's all building up to how is Judas going to respond to the love that Jesus is showing him and then we see it. Literally, he takes it, and in that moment, darkness closes. He rejects Christ's offer of love, and it says that Satan enters into his heart. That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. Satan enters into his heart, and he is given over to his sin. And what's crazy about that is that Ju Judas chose to harden his heart in full accordance with the will of God. Again, Jesus is not surprised here. He's extending love, knowing that Judas will reject it. And this is where there's that tension. 
and I feel like it would be unfaithful of me to, to open up this, this text and not at least just touch on this, that there is in the Bible two truths that are affirmed. God is sovereign and man is accountable. And, and people say, well, if God is sovereign, then do we have any kind of choice? And it's, well, if we have choice, then is, you know, is God actually in control of all things? And, and where people err is they try to resolve the tension that scripture clearly says we need to keep. And there is tension between those two things, but guess what? Both are true. We serve a God who has ordained all things. He's sovereign over all things, and yet we are the ones who will be responsible for the choices we make. And we are the ones making those choices. And I love the way that Pastor John uh, explains it every time he's touched on this in Sundays. He says that, you know, our decisions in life perfectly back into God's sovereign plan. I think that's a helpful way to think of it. Like God's plan is there, and our decisions back into it perfectly every time. And we live with that. And so when we, when we meditate on that truth, it should, in some sense, leave us fearful and trembling, needing to work out our salvation. Not because we can lose it, but because ultimately we will be held responsible. And for those who choose to reject Christ, to, to say, no, I don't believe, I've heard this good news and I don't want it, I want my way, then there is a very fearful reality called hell. And there's judgment. And that's what, what Judas experienced. Like, he is in hell right now, experiencing torment. And I, I guarantee you, if he were to come here today, and we could say, Judas, you care to talk about this, he would say, it's real. Make the right decision. Is God sovereign over it? Yes. But you have to choose. And so I would just implore you, don't reject God's grace and love as he pours it out. Um, there's nothing we can do outside of God's plan, and yet... Again, we are absolutely responsible for the way that we, we back into that plan with regards to our sin. And I think there's a lot of um, takeaways in this instance from Judas' decision to reject Christ. And so I just want to walk through three of them with you. And here's the first one, the first thing I took away from this. It's that proximity to Christ does not guarantee salvation. You know, there's a lot of people... Um, who are in the church, or maybe you are someone who's like, my family loves Jesus, therefore I am saved, you know? That kind of thought where you're around the Bible a lot, but that doesn't mean you believe it. And that doesn't mean you know Christ just being around him. Um, it was uh, humbling for me to read this, but one of the commentaries, a guy named Bruce Milne, he said, there is a road to hell at the very gates of heaven. He's kind of speaking to that, that you can be right there, you can hear the stories, sing the songs, but unless you put your faith in Christ and you believe that he is Lord and you believe that he paid the, the penalty on the cross, not for everyone else, but for you and turn away from your sins, you won't be saved. That's the only way through. And so we need to be very careful that we don't, I think especially in 20s, we don't just assume that because we're showing up, we're good. God wants us to work through even our own hearts, our own souls, and he wants us to turn to Christ. And he, he goes on, Bruce does, to say that there's a very real road to hell at the very gates of heaven in the sense that it is possible to resist even the prolonged personal appeals of Jesus Christ and to turn away at the last into the darkness. And so, again, I don't say that to freak anyone out, but more just to say that it's a real decision. And uh, we get to be the ones who make it. I think that's especially profound at an age where all of us are now having to make our own decisions for the first time in a lot of ways. And this is one of them. 
And so I just encourage you in that to know that proximity to Christ doesn't necessarily mean salvation. Here's the second takeaway. There are no excuses for disbelief. And here's, here's the one where I would get that from. I, I've talked to a lot of people, and I've even wrestled with this in my own heart. You know, it's like, if I could only see Jesus, maybe you've heard this. You're talking to someone, you're sharing the gospel, you're like, yeah, you know, that's great. I love that thought. Jesus sounds great. But if I could just see him and maybe a couple of the miracles he did, then I would believe. Friends, Judas saw every single miracle that Jesus did, at least the majority of them. He heard Jesus teach all of those amazing sermons. He probably got a bunch of the special, like the special edition stuff we don't get. You know, he was with him. But guess what? He didn't believe. And so that is, there are no excuses. That's my takeaway from Judas. To disbelieve in the Son of God is to reject him. And you not seeing a miracle is not why you don't believe. It's sin. It's pride. That's the only reason people reject God. It's not for for a lack of evidence. It's always pride. It's us being unable to say, you are Lord and I am second. And so we need to remember that. My last takeaway. Again, the refusal of faith has terrible consequences. Uh, It did for Judas. It's terrible. Um, he, He betrays Christ, and then he feels immediately after that what I would call worldly sorrow and then he ends up ending his own life because he can't deal with the shame of it but even though that's true and the refusal of faith it does have terrible consequences I think there's a lot of hope um, in another one of the apostles which is Peter because both Peter and Judas betray Christ relatively around the same time and yet one of them is with the Lord right now and the other one is not And what separates the two is that when Judas betrayed Christ, what he felt was worldly sorrow. And we can all feel this, like, I feel bad because I know what I did was wrong. But friends, godly grief, which turns to repentance, isn't just feeling bad about what you did. It's realizing that Jesus is so much better and turning back to him. Judas let himself get crushed by despair. Peter does the same thing. I mean, he denies Jesus three times, which... I mean, again, it's semantics on which one's worse, betraying Jesus, denying Jesus. Both are bad, but instead of, you know, being crushed by despair, he repents. God restores him. And so for us, as we look at this, (laughs) maybe you're here and you're like, man, I have been the person who's rejected Christ. Is there any hope for me? And I would say, yes, you're here. Any of you. If you're here and you're breathing, guess what? That means you have time. (laughs) But you're not promised anymore. And so I would just encourage you, do not be controlled by worldly sorrow. Be controlled by godly grief. God will use that. And I think the encouragement behind it is to uh, believe in the light while you have the light. Jesus says that in uh, John chapter 12, just before this. Believe in the light while you have the light. I pray that's true for all of us. And so as we close, I I wanted to end by mentioning a very interesting play on words that you find in this passage. This was just something that was kind of bugging me the whole time. And when I, when I dove into it, it was such an encouragement. But uh, when Jesus says to the disciples that one of you will betray me, the word itself, betray, means to hand over. And it's used a lot throughout the, the Gospel of John. But right before this, you actually see it be used to describe Jesus. It's the very same word that it's using to describe him handing Judas the piece of bread. And so it says, Judas, you will hand me over, but I'm handing you this. 
kind of your last attempt. But even before that, you find another use, and it's used to describe the Father who has handed all things over to the Son, who is Jesus Christ. And I just thought that was profound. I wanted to end with that, that in Scripture you see, you know, Judas hands Jesus over to these authorities. That's what he ends up doing after this. He hands Jesus over, and he rejects him. Jesus, on the other hand, (laughs) play on words, is handing Judas love, a chance of repentance. And God, in this situation, is handing his son all authority. So what is our role? It is this. Simply, we are to hand all things to Christ and to trust in him. And you can either hand Jesus away or you can hand all you've got to Jesus. And as we hand things to Christ, we're told that he is faithful and able to help us in those things. Whether it's a betrayal you've suffered or whatever experiences you have going on in life, it's that he is enough and he's good and he's working it for the purpose of his glory. And so I wanted to leave us uh, just kind of with that thought. That 20s would be a place where we have faith in the God who is in control of all things. We would understand we're accountable. But that as we lean into that, that posture of just handing everything to Jesus, we get to see him show off. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like those are the best moments. You're like, God, this sucks. <laughs> I'm going to hand it to you. And then he shows up. And I just pray that he would continue to have more and more of those in our ministry as a whole, but in your life. And that you would give him the opportunity to show off in that way. So, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, that you are sovereign, you're over all things, that you extend your love to us, and that we are then accountable. Lord, we're responsible for how we respond. Lord, the truth is none of us respond perfectly. Would you forgive us for that? Would you help us, by the power of your spirit, to submit to your will? God, even as we we sang at the beginning of this, we want to hang on every word you've given us. And we want to look at it. And even when it's difficult or it challenges us and where we're coming from, we want to let you have the final say. And so, God, we submit to this truth that you're over all things. And, God, that's our hope, that even though the world is chaotic and our personal lives are chaotic, Lord, you are the one moving the pieces. And that in the chaos of it all, there is a beautiful tapestry being made. And that one day we're going to look back and we will give you glory for all the incredible ways that you formed us through trials, through triumphs, and everything in between. And so, God, I just pray you would bless us this week. Help us to put our confidence and our hope in your son, Jesus Christ. Bless us. Let us go forward, Lord, into this city, into the colleges we may be attending, into the jobs. Lord, let us live differently and build up the community here at 20s and in Redeemer Church. God, would you continue to build up your church until you return? Lord, we ask that you would do this. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.